thanks much for watching Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Dr. Nick Patel, who is the Chief Digital Officer and Vice Chair for Medicine and Primary Care at Prisma Health. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with what brought you to medicine, and then you have a very personal story about your son, right, whenever you were out of residency. So tell us about those stories briefly, and then how that has shaped your interest or, you know, just the importance within the field of the things you're working on. Well, first of all, Stephanie, thank you for having me, and, and Dr. Gupta as well. I, I grew up in a really small town in South Carolina uh, since the age of four. Uh, we immigrated to this country uh, in December of 79. And my parents bought, uh, went into business um, in a small town called Hemingway, South Carolina. It's probably uh, two to three traffic lights. And the closest provider at that time was about 32 miles away. Um, and I used to unfortunately get a lot of ear infections when I was a kid. Uh, I also got pneumonia. And my parents didn't really understand the healthcare system in America. They didn't know where to go. And so I always went back to the place that was 32 miles away. And I remember finally getting a family doctor that came into uh, Johnsonville, which is four miles away. And I remember this provider, just how amazing, what amazing bedside rapport he had and bedside manner that he had. And he used to have this little diagram of an ear anatomy. And he used to show me like the station tube and why I used to get infections and, and the antibiotics that always made me feel better. And it was just like something that really inspired me to go into medicine, started to really get into pathophysiology and understanding antibiotics. And I was always kind of a science geek at heart uh, from the very beginning. So it was a nice mix. And he actually mentored me even since the age of six in pushing me towards medicine. I didn't know if I was gonna end up there or not, um, but uh, my parents were obviously very happy to support me being a doctor when I grew up. Um, but that's one of the things that started me in that path. And, and I went to med school here in, in South Carolina and, and did my residency here in South Carolina as well, actually at the health system I'm working at currently. And uh, that's where my journey began. And it was all focused on the fact that I wanted to be able to help others and use science to affect change in people's lives. That's amazing. And then right after you finished your residency, you had your son who then had a stay in the NICU. So what was that like? You know, you're in medicine, now you're understanding it and you have the ability to be that person, but you can't for your own son because that's, you know, he's in the NICU. That's not the world you're living in at that point. Correct. Yeah, that was obviously, it was uh, great news and scary at the same time uh, of us obviously having a child. Um, and he was about eight weeks early. And, um, you know, I remember I knew exactly what was happening. My wife didn't know what was happening, that she had broke her water. And I called uh, our um, GYN, OBGYN, um, who's a friend of ours. And she said, come on directly. And it was just a smooth right into the hospital bed um, and, and, and having bed rest for two weeks. And then essentially gave birth at six weeks uh, uh, early and was in the NICU, you had to have surgery uh, a few days after life. Uh, he had a, what's called a TE fistula, which is where your trachea and your esophagus have a area was kind of connected. So any, you can imagine if you, if you have anything by mouth, it can go in your lungs. Uh, and so he had to have surgery to fix that area. But I was actually uh, doing a shift in the, as a hospitalist. That's the job I started right out of residency. And I went by the NICU and I noticed that um, they had just fed him 
because he had a, a, a peg tube in a G tube and uh, my wife was pumping and, and then they were uh, given that through the feeding tube. And I noticed he was having rib retractions and I did some pediatrics in my first year residency. And I asked the attending to come over and say, hey, can you just get a chest X-ray? He was very reluctant to do it, thought that it was not necessary, but I felt that it was, it just had the sixth sense and the fact that he was having these physical signs that I've learned would cause respiratory distress. He ended up eventually getting that chest X-ray while I was admitting some patient in the ER. And he called me and he said he has a, what we call a chylothorax. His lung was about to collapse because he had fluid building around his lung post-surgery and they had to put a chest tube in emergently. So it, it was definitely scary and uh, seeing that whole process of, um, you know, being in the NICU, it's a very vulnerable place and um, doesn't matter how much you know about medicine, it sometimes can work against you because your medical knowledge is kind of thinking about all the things that could happen versus was most likely to happen. So it was, um, but it was a definitely a growing experience. We aged a lot in that six weeks, uh, but luckily he's 100% healthy and, uh, you know, can play football and, and, and no issues because it's 100% curable, which is, uh, you know, which was great. Uh, and he's doing very well. And he's actually taller than I am. So uh, I think he's going to be just fine. You know, not every parent is a doctor and not every parent knows what to do or can be there at that exact moment. So it's interesting. It had to shape the way that you perform your job even now today, both practicing medicine and as chief digital officer, because you've lived both. You've lived that where you may not have had such an equitable experience because of the disadvantage of not knowing the system and then having the advantage and having you yeah. know, a better access or a better opportunity than others. So how does that shape how you practice and perform your job? Yeah, I learned a lot through that, right? Because it was a lot of sense of guilt that I can just tap my badge and go right into NICU anytime I wanted to, uh, outside of visiting hours, right? And be able to see my son. Uh, one of the things that you learn in the NICU is that, you know, uh, the NICU, it's not like you have a separate room for every baby. They're right next to each other. And you get to become very close to other families, other parents, moms and dads out there going through the same traumatic experience that you are. Uh, and you know, when they find out you're a doctor, they immediately, hey, can you find out if this has happened to my son? Or can you go look at this? Can you look at that? And, and I felt bad about that because they should have the same access to knowledge about their child that I do. And, um, and, and, and so, yes, that, that's my first experience of being able to have previously not having that uh, avail uh, the access and now having full access. And so when I think about, uh, you know, I'm a primary care doctor now, I did hospitals for many years, and I went into the outpatient medicine side uh, because I noticed that a lot of patients who were being admitted uh, to the hospital were admitting for things that were fully avoidable. Uh, and most of the time it was, they didn't have a primary care provider. So there's an access care issue. Um, and so I went into the primary care world and, and started my, uh, working with a private practice uh, with other providers and, and, and really trying to affect change before they get sick or early detection, even if the, after a diagnosis is made and making sure that they had easy access to the practice, easy access to, uh, after hours. And when we sit down to them, we're listening to them. We're not uh, spending 10, 15 minutes and walking out the door. Uh, so it was very important for me is that when we build our practice and the reputation we had in that practice, it's all about access and building that rapport and making patients feel that they're not rushed 
and they get their questions answered, which is really hard in a fee-for-service uh, you know, office when you're just trying to see a lot of patients. So in order to make the revenue to keep the lights on as well as to pay yourself. Uh, and so there's this always this constant battle between you know, spending time with a patient, but also needing to move on to the next patient for many reasons. But, you know, it, and so there's this movement now to value-based care and, 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 and being able to spend more time with patients, especially those high-risk patients who really need your attention. So it's not about 10, 15 minutes and moving on, spending 50, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it takes to make sure that patient is on their right path. And and, uh, and then the other piece is making sure that uh, we do a better job in giving healthcare education. We talk a lot of medical lingo to our patients and don't talk about it in layman's terms. So really understanding, you know, explaining to them what's going on, what is diabetes and how is it truly affecting your body? What is hypertension and how is it affecting your body? And to me, the more information a patient you empower them with, the more likely they're gonna take care of themselves, improve that med adherence, change that lifestyle, uh, et cetera. So uh, in the state of South Carolina, you know, we we're about 5 million people uh, in, this, in this state. And so there's a lot of rural areas where there's really food deserts, healthcare deserts, and patients have to drive, you know, like I did when I was, my parents, when I was young, uh, 40, 50 miles to see a provider. And so we have to be able to then leverage digital health and ability to do video visits, and be able to take care of people where they live in their environment in order so, so they don't exacerbate their chronic disease and end up in the hospital or don't even know they have diabetes. You know, sometimes we have people come to ER, they never knew they had diabetes and they come in and, and really serious illness at that time and a serious exacerbation of their, of their diabetes. So, but one of the things I have to also say in, 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 in bringing in new technology, you have to Again, think about that digital divide. You don't want to, again, add or contribute to the health inequity. Um, you know, you want to empower the patients by giving them easy to use, simple tools and having access uh, through broadband or cellular so they can actually have those interactions with you no matter where they are. Wow, Nick, you've brought us on such a tremendous journey starting from your uh, roots in, as a, in, in terms of family and then your residency training and how that was guided uh, your child and you know how harrowing of an experience that must have been to you know all the way through to building up a practice of and really a practice of the future even in those times and to how you use digital all throughout it you know what clearly comes across is the deep human connection that you've always tried to show and your deep concern for equity yet you're the chief digital officer you know and sort of uh, when you hear that, you kind of always think that, you know, the, your main focus is going to be something else. It's going to be on the toys or the technology or the tools. Right. And, and I'm sure you have that, but I love the holistic way in which you cover all these things. So, you know, please uh, share a little bit more about what you think is the promise of technology to truly help, you know, make these human connections and improve equity inequities in healthcare. Yeah, I think the biggest thing about my role that I try to keep in mind, again, is the patient, number one. It's the center of my focus. Uh, and what you have to, when you think about that, you also have to think about all those social determinants of health that affect that patient. I firmly believe that no one wants to be sick, uh, that they're not doing things to themselves in order to be obese or have diabetes or die early of heart disease. 
it is a it's a social uh, uh, you know issue that in community has to be involved in enacting change too, not just your provider. Um, and in, in in South Carolina, one of the things that we I always keep in mind is that when we think about technology, we got to start with a problem first. What are we trying to solve? You know, one of the things I see health systems make a big mistake with digital officers or other technology leaders is they start with technology and then they try to solve an issue with it. Well, what you have to do is start with a problem first and then make sure that you are very prescriptive in your deployment of technology to help you solve that. The other thing is, is that you also have to realize that most health systems are very operationally inefficient. And so trying to throw digital onto old analog processes is not the way to solve the problem. All you'll do is end up with more technology that sits on a shelf that doesn't make an impact. For me, I'll, I'm a very impact-driven leader. I have to see results and it has to be results in regards to health equity, outcomes and, and early prevention, right? So what, what we've tried to do here in order to do that in a seamless way, and obviously COVID has been a catalyst uh, for many of this across the country, but to really have a true digital continuum of services. So being able to do early detection using data coming in through wearable technology or overall social determinant zip code data, claims data, to be able to then focus on trying to figure out what is the risk this patient has for bad health and then intervening early. So it could be a chatbot intervening, uh, intervening with you. It could be a Alexa with a voice assistant talking to you about taking your medications or letting us know when you're getting, you know, if something's not going right to a video visit that allows a provider to be beamed into your house. Those types of things are uh, what we're trying to do. And then being able to then connect that to your, your family too, because it's, most of the times you find it's not just the patient, it's the, it's the mother, it's the grandmother, it is others in the care circle that you also have to include in this. And so how do you do that in a meaningful way and, and try to prevent patients from getting sick and by early detection so they don't end up in the emergency room and they don't end up eventually in the hospital. Uh, so we've done that in many ways here. Uh, we have a hospital at home program. So now we're patient shows up to ER, they have certain diagnoses. We can actually take you and admit you to your house and we can take care of you in your house through IV fluids, IV antibiotics and wearable technology with a home health nurse that checks on you every day with a hospitalist. Then there's monitor at home, which we did to decompress hospitals from COVID patients. When they got stable, we sent them home and they're monitored by a primary care provider. And, and then virtual primary care, um, being able to uh, have access to primary care services uh, without having to go to a location or wait. Um, I, you know, eventually we should be able to be have on-demand healthcare, uh, both proactively as well as on-demand. And that's what we're trying, that's what I'm trying to put together and, and talking not only at, to our health system in making these changes, but really across the nation on what we need to do to make a true impact and change in, in healthcare, because healthcare is not gonna be changed by just one health system in Prisma. It's, it's gonna take collaboration uh, with systems across the country in order to effect change. These capabilities, Nick, that you just mentioned are just so profound, right? And they're so, they're, they're cutting edge because they're, some of them are technologies that have been around but have been implemented 
other than the last couple of years because of COVID. So you're talking about hospital at home, you're talking about remote patient monitoring and now telemedicine and so many other technologies you alluded to. Are these then, you know, in the context of your last comment that you were making, that, that health systems have to work together, they've got to collaborate. Do you see these as capabilities of the community or as capabilities of healthcare overall? Or are these the differentiators that health systems kind of have to wield against each other in order to attract more clients to come to them over the next health system? So consumerism beca has become a big topic, right, of discussion and, uh, and one of those uh, words being thrown around quite a bit. And when there's different spins of when people talk about consumerism, you know, part of it is the retail outreach. So trying to get a certain market, uh, a, a, a market share in your catchment area. Um, and, and so how do you make healthcare easy, accessible, cost-effective, come see us, I'll see you in five minutes. So this is where you're seeing a lot of disruptors coming to market, right? Carbon Health, um, One Medical, Amazon's getting to it, Walmart's getting into it. Um, so it's all about easy access and, and, and having that great user experience. The flip side of that is, is also thinking about consumerism in that it's not a dirty word to be able to, in healthcare, focus on patients and their needs. Because uh, previously, in the old traditional way, you get sick, you come see me, I fix you, and you go home. Uh, there is no proactive care. So to, true consumerism or patient-focused care has to do with proactive care. And that proactive care means that you should be able to get care no matter where you are in the country. So how do I say that uh, I was taking care of you and I've already had you on this curtain, a certain care journey, but now you're visiting California, for example, and you get sick there. How does that data move with you? How does that journey move with you and that data move with you? So the next provider can just pick up and go based on what journey you've been on and understand the choices we've made and from a healthcare plan perspective, what your, what your goals are, and then what it led to your exacerbation in California, right? So be able to do that interoperability is something that's still lacking. Uh, so sharing data needs to be moving more free form so long it's secured. And it should be the patient's data, not the health system's data, in my opinion. That data should move with the patient. You paid for those services. It is your health data. It's your personal information. And that should be able to move wherever you expect it to move within the right uh, security uh, measures being in place, right? So um, I think that's where we need to go. This is a one step where health systems need to collaborate is being able to have better uh, information exchange. Uh, now, certain EHRs do that really well within their EHR. So if you're on Epic and five other health systems are on Epic, do their HIE data flows really nicely, so long as the patient is cons uh, you know, um, uh, consented for it. But if you go to somewhere in California that has a non-big EHR, it's gonna be difficult for them to get that data. And so I would say interoperability and data exchange is one of those things that you can collaborate on. The other thing is how do you work with your community as a whole uh, in the state of South Carolina, for example, uh, to affect change at the community level uh, to help with those uh, food deserts and healthy eating, uh, as well as community resources when it comes to getting, um, you know, their medications, for example, or education, transportation, those types of things. Is how do you collaborate with your state and federal entities 
uh, on a larger scale in order to be able to have that already ingrained in healthcare delivery. Uh, those are challenges that every health system has and they're trying to individually solve for it versus trying to solve for it together. It's incredible. I think you're painting such an incredible, bold vision of where our system needs to go. And uh, you, you've also given us some ideas around where collaboration can happen. Uh, so, you know, just to be, uh, be, be a little bit uh, mindful of your time here, what do you think the uh, health system leader needs to be able to do? so that they can find you know, some areas of collaboration that don't uh, you know, ultimately disrupt their ideas of what it takes to be competitive at the same time? Yeah, I think one, I think the biggest thing is to be open to the conversation, uh, to talk to other CEOs and leaders at other health systems and come up with projects that are meaningful for all of them. Because they're all trying to affect change in their community, right? Um, and, and so how do you work together to do that on a statewide or regional or national level um, is where you're going to see some really major changes in healthcare. Remember, medicine doesn't or healthcare shouldn't just happen when you've got the 10 to 15 minutes FaceTime with your provider in an office, three months, six months, 12 months in a year. It should happen every day. And the only way it's going to happen every day is, is the partnerships between other health systems and the community leaders, their church groups, other folks in the area that are going to help affect that change and have that support matrix set up. And so really it's about trying to say, I wanna be better than 45th in the nation for healthcare. How do we start to chip away at that? How do we start to let's just say work on diabetes and why is it that we have such a prevalence of diabetes in the state of South Carolina? Number one, being obesity. Okay, why are we having an obesity problem? Well, because number one, healthy food costs a lot more than fast food and and healthy food is less accessible than fast food especially in our rural areas so what do we do to fix that right solving it from the bottom up instead of waiting for them to get sick and then treating that problem so those are some things that i think health systems and ceos can get their heads around is solving those community issues those social determinant issues that are again of negatively affecting someone's health what are some of the things that you might be particularly proud of that you've done or ways that you've maybe been able to activate the community to help with this transition? Because it seems like there has to be a way that if you can give them some of that empowerment to do these things that they can maybe help these health systems realize that this is important to collaborate on some of these key issues. Yeah, we did some really cool things around COVID, for example. Uh, we gave a chatbot out for free for the whole state that can use for symptom checking. We had a return to work COVID chat. So people wanted to go back to work. They needed a work excuse to go back to work that they're safe and healthy to go. Uh, so we did a lot of stuff around automated chatbots around COVID. We also did, uh, you know, the state of South Carolina has a huge telehealth grant. So we work with a lot of the health systems on trying to collaborate around our health telehealth tools as well, but a lot of the outreach has been with our rural health initiatives and our programs there, our schools. Uh, we set up, for example, the ability for, and opened up uh, Wi-Fi uh, for our children uh, to be able to use uh, digital health services. A lot of folks don't have uh, broadband at home, but the schools networks are also closed. But when the schools or uh, kids were sent home for COVID, they were given laptops and you would see it every day. Kids still came to school to get their lunches because that was, for a lot of kids, that's the only meal they get in a day. 
And so when they came there, they would sit in the parking lot and download their homework assignments because they have access to the Wi-Fi. So we worked with our school leaders to open up the Wi-Fi access points to let us also allow for telehealth options for the whole family. So that one Google Chrome tablet that was given to this child, now he had an opportunity to give healthcare to the whole family as well. So that, that, was a, that was one thing. We also did a great project that we're doing now is providing uh, telehealth services to the Department of Corrections and inmates to provide virtual primary care. Because we see a lot of inmates having uh, their, their healthcare chronic issues exacerbate, end up in the ER uh, or the hospital. Uh, and so if we can solve a lot of these issues by proactive care, by digital services right there, it's not, not only gonna get their healthcare better, it actually saves the state money from security and transportation and cost uh, for that inmate uh, going to a high cost center. So those are just a, a, a very few, but there's a lot more that we've done across the community uh, to better the care of South Carolinians. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this. I love this conversation. I love your collaborative approach and how you focus on the digital ways, but also how the, the human aspect of it, it's amazing. Yeah, that's what we need to make sure we always focus on. It's not the tech, but the people at the end of it. So inspiring, Nick. Thank you for sharing your stories with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.